Welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Live Yet and 1041 Lake Charles's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully, you've been enjoying everything over the last couple of weeks. We took a little bit of a break again, but you know that those things kind of happen. Life gets in the way. Hopefully, you've been enjoying it. I know I have, and we're gonna get right down to brass tacks, talk some WrestleMania backlash, and also UFC 274 from this past weekend. And trust me, there's a lot to break down from this. So we'll start with UFC 274. I've also got something really cool that I was going to do last week, but got pushed off because, well, I've been basically working from home over the last week or so. So it's kind of been weird trying to balance everything. But then again, that's just life. So let's get to UFC 274 because I think there's a few takeaways from it. The biggest one, obviously, is going to be the fact you had a mere 24 hours before UFC 274 was getting underway. I'm talking early prelim type stuff the day before you have Charles Oliveira, the lightweight champion of the world miss out and actually miss weight, meaning he has to vacate the lightweight championship before the main event against Justin Gaethje. So basically if Gaethje were to win the fight, which he didn't, and we'll get to that in a little bit, that wound up causing an interesting turn and an interesting part of the story. Now, what happens after the fight was the more interesting part of this because obviously there's a lot of controversy surrounding the weigh-ins. The fact the way it was handled was a little bit different compared to other places. And the fact that this was handled with an in-state commission in Arizona versus something that UFC handles themselves is a little bit different. But it still had a lot of interesting kind of twists and turns. And that's sometimes how these things go. But that's not the only thing that had some twists and turns on Saturday night. You wound up having something hyped up in the main card, which was going to be Donald Cowboy Cerrone versus Lausanne. And this was supposed to be the last fight of either of those guys' career. This is basically Dana White built it as the loser leaves town match, basically. It reminded me old school Mid-South style, the way he promoted it. But it was interesting to hear him kind of talk about that and I wish they would do more stuff like that where they have those guys maybe put that on the, the featured fight on the prelims you know that way you can have it be built up and these two guys who haven't done a whole hell of a lot could have an opportunity to either continue their career or go off into the sunset and this match actually got called off due to a non-COVID illness that day with Donald Cerrone, he wound up being pulled from this match and that got bumped up to the main card with Chaos Williams, Randy Brown. And thankfully, right before I kind of got around to taping this, they announced Cowboy Cerrone, they rebooked this for June 18th out in Austin. So this will be a, in a fight next month. And this could be the end of the road for either one of those guys. In fact, Donald Cerrone basically said he's announcing his retirement after two more fights. Now, if he loses this one, This could get a little bit more sped up, but still, it's great to see them kind of run this one back so soon. June 18th again, hopefully they can get that one in. But overall, Chaos Williams, Randy Brown was a good replacement here. Opening moments of the fight, Brown kind of took full advantage. He had the significant reach for a good bit of that fight in the first round. He He got a good knockdown on Chaos Williams, locked in a front choke, really took control the rest of the first round. He got a really nice in guillotine. He was more 10-9. Brown really started letting it rip in the second round. Had a big punch, rock Chaos, but he was still standing. Seemed even more in favor of, you know, I felt like Brown took advantage here 
again, I went more 10-9 on that one. Then we get to the third round. I feel like Chaos had a big key to where he could very well have secured a win the way it was all setting up because Williams had a really good first round. It was a tough 10-9. It was very difficult to make a really good opinion either way, watching it live as it happens. But you do have Brown getting the win by split decision. Gets a good bit of booze and some derision from a lot of the fans in the arena. And trust me, they were out in full force. It reminded a lot of the Saints in the 2014-16 kind of years where the Boo Birds were out in full force. And just based off of key metrics alone, looked like chaos at certain points. He deserved the W, but it, that just was not the case in this fight. Then we get to Shogun Rua versus Ovin St. Peru, and this was a little bit underwhelming at certain points because Rua did get some big hits in during the final moments of the, of the second round. The first round really didn't do much for anybody because no one really gained an edge, and fans weren't necessarily a huge fan of the fight because St. Peru was being a little more lackadaisical and just trying to win the fight solely by the scorecard. It worked out because he won the fight by split decision, but it was probably one of the most underwhelming fights in the second worst on the night. And that's saying something considering how bad one of those fights in particular was. And we'll talk about that one in a few, but it was overall rules started to run away from St. Peru as time expired, which wasn't a great look for him. And he's starting to wrap up his career and he's a legend in his own right, but damn, that was a disappointing performance from Shogun against Ovin St. Pru. Now the crowd is really going to come alive here for the third to last fight, probably one of the most anticipated ones besides the main event. Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson. Ferguson basically got some really good hits, got a good knockdown, really starting to smell blood in the water at a certain point because Chandler got busted open early, but he bounced back. And he definitely took control towards the end of the first round. And according to my card, I actually wound up going more 10-9 on Ferguson. But it was extremely close, largely because Chandler got a nice takedown on him and made it a little more competitive. But I think that big punch early on by Ferguson, getting a good knockdown and almost getting the win there, kind of put me in that perspective where I think Michael Chandler was going to lose that fight if it came to the scorecards. But it did not because Chandler absolutely folded the holy hell out of Ferguson with a front kick in the second round. Like it looked like he died the way he took that kick. It was just dead on balls accurate to steal a phrase from my cousin Vinny. This was one of the most like brutal looking kicks I've ever seen. And it took several minutes for for Tony Ferguson to get up off the mat. Holy bleep. That was amazing. I was getting texts from people. They were losing their minds over this. It was literally one of my favorite knockouts over the last couple of years. This was that moment in time where you just saw this dude just get completely destroyed. And Chandler, obviously, he's a guy that I think could definitely be the number one contender for the UFC lightweight championship, get another opportunity against Oliveira. But he calls out McGregor after the fight. And again, it's the big money fight. And Conor McGregor, if he wants to come back and ruin his career, because I think Michael Chandler would be able to knock the dog crap out of him in a New York minute. And I think it'd be an absolutely beat down and probably ruin his whole career because the guy is a draw. But at the same time, you can only lose so many matches before you really start falling apart, especially in the world of the UFC. That's kind of my part. It just feels like Conor McGregor is going to be chasing a couple more of these big fights to get people that are going to be interested. 
needs to have a tomato can and then maybe face off against Michael Chandler because if Connor's first fight back is against Michael Chandler, Chandler's going to mop the floor with him and then some. But enough about that. Women's strawweight championship match, the co-main event of the evening, absolutely was one of the most boring fights I've ever seen. And that's saying something, considering I've seen Kamaru Usman, I was blown away how quickly this fight became one of the worst. Thank God I had Canelo Alvarez and Dimitri Bivol on another screen. Because I had So full disclosure, here's how my setup is. I've just got the one monitor that I'm mainly watching UFC and stuff from. I don't have a two-monitor setup. It's just a laptop. So I'm watching on two different monitors, two different windows, I should say. I have one window open where I have my notes, where I'm writing down notes throughout the fight. And it was literally, I wrote down maybe like two or three lines worth of notes for the entire fight, it felt like. And I'd have one screen for UFC and the other screen for the Canelo Bivol fight because both because Canelo Bivol had started just before this started, and I had to kind of keep going back and forth to different sources to get it to work right because I wound up having some lag with audio. But you know, it is what it is. Honestly, this is wild to think about. So you had early feeling out process again. Th- those things kind of happened in the first round, but they were really exploring the octagon and choosing to keep their distance, and they. Threw very little punches in the first round. Literally, I think three strikes apiece landed. And at this point, the match just, the fight completely sucked. It was, sucked the air out of the entire arena. And third round, we got to finally see some action. Esparza got a big takedown attempt on Thug Rose, but didn't work out. Camera started freaking the hell out. And then it goes back to the social distancing fight that I was noticing. It Nobody really had an edge here. Rose wound up fighting back a little bit later. Essentially, fourth round, you had Esparza going for another takedown, basically hopping on her like a backpack. That was kind of weird to see, but it was definitely a good like balancing point to where you sat there watching the fight. It was and You just knew this was going to go down as one of the worst. It's going to be the drizzling you-know-what. And it's exactly what it was. Carla Esparza won the match by split decision. She absolutely deserved the win. And I hope to God we don't see this fight run back. Again, Esparza has a 2-0 lead, so more likely than not, a trilogy fight will not happen here. But please, for the love of God, we we need to have Carla Esparza and Thug Rose kept as far apart as humanly possible. Now we get to the main event. This was the exact opposite. This was complete and utter, like, it felt like, I've never mentioned this before, but I'm a huge Dragon Ball Z fan. I'm a huge fan of the show from back in the day. And it felt like that kind of fight, how quickly things just got kicked into second or third gear. Gaethje wasted zero time getting some good offense in, knocks down Oliveira twice. Oliveira wound up fighting back and locked in a triangle at first and segued into a rear naked choke and won by submission. Made it look way, and I mean way, too easy to see that happen. I was blown away how quickly that fight kind of came and went the championship's still vacant but dana mentions because you wound up seeing uh, charles Oliveira jump over the octagon after doing some flips and whatnot he goes outside and dana white mentions he's number one contender right after the fight so again tons of controversy after the weigh-ins now you wonder who's going to be his opponent again i think michael chandler absolutely deserves a fair shake at the championship i think he definitely deserves that spot but it's not necessarily 100% secured because obviously you got to figure out what else you're going to do 
with the rest of your car because at the end of the day, you look at the UFC lightweight rankings, it's tough. Like it's tough to really think about who fits in that lightweight division. Again, Oliveira, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje. Oliveira just beat two and three. Islam Makachev could be another guy that fits in that kind of range. Benil Darouche is another guy, but I think he's a little bit further away from the lightweight division compared to what we see with Michael Chandler and Makachev. Obviously, somehow Conor McGregor is ranked ninth, which is mind-boggling to me. But I think it's, it comes down to Islam Makachev, Michael Chandler as being the next number one contender in the UFC lightweight division. Meanwhile, UFC is pulling out all the stops and with possibly one of the best cards I have ever seen. And it's coming up for International Fight Week. I want to break down this card real quick. Because they announced it and the entire card is top to bottom insane. You've got the just the... Ten, the handful of matches they announced already. Robbie Lawler, Robbie Lawler, excuse me, against Brian Barberina. Jessica EA versus Macy Barber. That's going to be a really fun women's match. Misha Tate taking on Lauren Murphy. You've got Jessica Rose Clark in a women's bantamweight match. She's going to be action. Brad Tavares versus, I'm going to probably mispronounce his name, so excuse me here. Drickus Duplessis. That's going to be a banger. Uriah Hall, Andrew Muniz, Andre Muniz, excuse me. Sugar Sean O'Malley in a bantamweight match that could probably put him in a title fight. In my mind, Pedro Munoz, Sean Strickland, Alex Pereira, Alexander Volkanovsky, Max Holloway for the featherweight title, and Israel Adesanya versus Jerry Kanier. That is a stacked card. And then some, this be International Fight Week in July, the same weekend as Money in the Bank pay-per-view. So that weekend's going to be stacked for yours truly. But a top-tier card, and probably one of the best cards I've seen UFC put together in a good, like since the pandemic has kind of allowed more shows to come over. This is that one where I'm like, Oh boy, I cannot wait to talk about it. And more importantly, watch this bad boy. Maybe I'll go watch it somewhere where there's a lot of TVs and a bar. I think that'd be a, that'd be a great show to go see live in a living color over there or go watch it out and about somewhere in the great city of Lafayette, Louisiana. But enough about UFC. I want to get to something else that happened a couple weeks ago. I haven't mentioned this yet on this podcast, but the Forbidden Door show that AEW announced a couple weeks ago, they've already pretty much sold out. Again, it's mind-blowing to think about the fact that a pro wrestling show without announcing a single match on the card sells out like this. And it speaks to how big AEW is. They consistently sell out shows, yes. They sell smaller venues, but at the end of the day, yeah, I think it works out. This is a different level. You book the United Center, and you have already pretty much sold out the entire arena. And when you think about it, New Japan, over the last couple of years, because of the fan base that they have, they've struggled in the last couple of years with COVID because they've had to adapt to a new world, number one. You're not able to have the international stars come over. And you've had to basically adapt and change where you have New Japan strong and all that stuff. You're dealing with that more than anything. And it it really slowed the momentum down to a damn near crawl. Because you go back and you kind of see that 2016, I definitely would say 2017 from Wrestle Kingdom till very early 2020. Then you have a group of guys that are absolutely putting on bangers. Dave Meltzer's talking about all of them all the time and the New Japan titles, IWGP titles, the absolutely biggest deal in the business. 
But after the pandemic, things slowed down to a point where people didn't necessarily care. Even I, I love, I loved New Japan before the 2020 run, before the pandemic started. I was watching a lot of that stuff. I was watching a lot of the big shows. Haven't watched in a while a big show for New Japan. Maybe that'll change because I want to start watching again, especially the best of the Super Juniors. That looks like a really stacked lineup. The fact you've got Alex Zane in there, I think he's a strong favorite in that. Also, maybe get some of my partners over to talk about this on the podcast. But that's a conversation for down the road. But going back to what I was saying, like, Evil winning the title was 100% the equivalent of Diesel winning the belt in terms of hurting the business that New Japan had, and more importantly, kind of diluted the Bullet Club. That said, this show has some potential to give you the best wrestling you will ever see. Because not only do you have some of the best in New Japan, you have some of the best in AEW, which are some of the best in the world, period. And I want to throw in five matches, because I can't think of many more that would fit, that could stand on their own, where I can say, without a doubt, these are going to be absolute bangers from the jump. I'm going with five. Again, I could probably go a few more. I had a couple that were on the chopping block, but I kind of just chose not to include them here. Maybe I could throw them in for another conversation. So my booking in my mind, it's got to be AEW versus New Japan, because if it's not, what's the damn point? And I'm going to go with the controversial main event here. And I'll give you a spoiler on top of that for double or nothing, because I think this is going to be the direction they go. I think CM Punk is going to be your new AEW champion. They've teased this match for a good while. And honestly, why not put champion versus champion, not a unification, not anything like we saw at WrestleMania, but make it to where you have the two biggest stars, biggest star from Japan and one of the biggest stars worldwide square off in a phenomenal main event. Okada versus CM Punk. I would love to see this. They're two of the best in the business over the last couple decades. And barring Kenny Omega being ready for the show, spoilers, he won't be. I think this is the next best fit for the main event. Again, that's just me. Now we get to something more interesting with the semi-main event, which you could turn into an angle to help build to all out. Because I think they're going to build, I talk about Kenny Omega, he's not going to be ready for this show in June. But I would not be surprised if he starts getting ready, let's say late July, early August, and we build towards All Out in September. And I would love to see them start to build this. This would be the core here with a big six-man Bucks and Kenny, the OG Elite versus the Undisputed Elite with Cole and Red Dragon or whatever you want to call them, the, the Undisputed Paragon, whatever the hell. So you have this. You have the Bullet Club, basically the Bullet Club, U.S., J.Y., Doc Gallows, Carl Anderson, all those guys. They invade Challenge Undisputed Elite, eventually Cole and crew turn on the Bucks, and that sets up the eventual six-man for maybe even put the six-man tag team titles on All Out and have that be the match. I think you can do something with that. Then you get to the IWGP United States Championship. I'm throwing a title match on here. because I'm throwing two of them on here, I should say, but because why the hell not? Hangman Page versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. Hiroshi's currently holding the title right now. The two aces of their respective companies going at it. This would probably be a four, four and a half star match, according to Dave Meltzer, if not more. I could probably put Will Ospreay and other guys on there, but it just feels like that would be a really fun match for the United States Championship. Now we get to the ROH Tag Team Championship match that I'm going to book here. Two of the best tag teams in the business and be absolutely 
and tag team wrestling with AEW has become such a big deal. I would love to see this happen. ROH tag titles, FTR versus Gorillas of Destiny. Tell me that would be a hard hitting, just absolute slobber knocker. And I know JR would absolutely love it. I think this would fit really well. And the last one's a little bit different because I'm going to go six man tag. And I'm going to choose chaos. I'm going to choose three members. I'm going to pick Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, and Yoshihashi. I'm picking those three guys, and that's it. And they're going to take on the the BCC, the the Blackpool Combat Club. I just want to see the Blackpool Combat Club in action and have a brawl with Tomohiro. That'd be badass as hell. I mean, hell, you could have the best friend show up as a cameo or something. I think this alone, those five guys, those five matches, I think could steal any one of those could steal the show. And that's how you book a stack card. Now, I think there's a couple other ones that we could throw in there. I think somebody like Eddie Kingston, Chris Jericho, anybody from the JAS could work well. Hell, I put, honestly, I throw in a bonus and say Jake Hager versus, let's say, you know, Robbie Lawler or not Robbie Lawler, Tom Lawler, filthy Tom. I would love to see that be more of an MMA-style showcase. Would love to see something like that, but it just feels like not necessarily what fits here. But I was saying that, and I was also thinking these big names. I was thinking Darby Allen, Will Ospreay could be another one that gets fit in there, but I'm not necessarily sure it would work in the angle. So I'm going to leave those guys out of it and just leave it down to five simple matches. Okada CM Punk champion versus champion. Bullet Club versus Undisputed Elite. That sets up a match at All Out with the Bucks and Kenny, the OG Elite, taking on Cole and Red Dragon. Hangman Adam Page versus Roshi Tanahashi for the U.S. title. FTR versus Gorillas of Destiny for the ROH tag titles. And a BCC Chaos six-man tag. That would be a ton of fun to see. I think, obviously, I'd throw in also maybe a Swerve Scott match would be fun as well. Not Swerve in his glory type stuff, but I think we'd see more along the lines of a junior heavyweight battle, maybe with the winner. I think Takahashi could be a really fun one, too, actually. I'm getting too much into it right now. But there's no true dream match with guys that I could put in like Eddie Kingston or Chris Jericho that would really make me intrigued. He's already doing some of them. They already have like a show coming up with New Japan where you're going to see a big dream match with Kingston. Jericho's faced off against all these guys. Naito's out for a while. Naito would be the next best fit for it, but he just doesn't fit because he's injured right now. He's actually having surgery on his eye. It's tough. Again, you have so many opportunities to book monster matches, but I think you need to put your best foot forward and give the fans an absolute banger of a show. And that's what's missing here where you don't have guys like Kingston and Jericho who could put on bangers, but at the same time they're involved in their own storyline and that could take a while to kind of pay off. I don't think that's going to get paid off simply at double or nothing. I could be wrong, but before we kind of get out of here, I want to get to WrestleMania backlash. And this was way better than I expected because I haven't watched much of WWE lately. I've, basically had it on I'll kind of like last night I actually watched the beginning of the show the opening match and I fell asleep and then I woke up and I watched the rest of the show and I thought it was a decent it was a very good Monday Night Raw and that's saying something they have not had a really great show in a long time but this was a step in the right direction I think WWE starting to figure out how to be in this world and kind of exist in the world of AEW just having better wrestling and we're seeing more and more like wrestling fit a different kind of style to it 
I think it all starts with the opening contest from Sunday with Cody Rhodes versus Seth freaking Rollins. And I'll have a complaint here, but it makes sense when you think about it because you have a lot more people watching live probably for the first time or are casual fans watching on Peacock. In fact, Peacock had their best numbers for WrestleMania. If you go look at the numbers, it's insane to see how much money WWE's making off of Peacock and how many people are actually watching their product on there versus what they were the entire time the network was around. It really speaks to that power that Peacock actually winds up having. It's a crappy interface. It's a crappy service. But at the same time, it works really well and people are actually subscribing and more importantly, tuning in. And that's a huge step in the right direction if you're WWE. Because now it's premium live events. It's not pay-per-views anymore. And I think that's something that's a big positive for them. I think AEW with HBO Max possibly coming, this could be a similar situation and it could help them out indubitably. But the fact that we have the show and it starts off with the video package. It's kind of like a Dr. Strange multiverse of madness type open. It's kind of weird. Then you get to the show. You get to the start of the show, the pyro, ballyhoo, all that stuff. Then you go to the commentators. They start setting the table for everything. And then we get to video packages. We go to a video package, hyping up the Cody Rhodes, Seth Rollins match to open up the show, which was a great idea to open up the show with this. But the match didn't start till 7.13. I could not stand the fact that that happened. Now, mind you, as soon as the video package started, because I have it on for the entire time from the kickoff show onward, I watched the entire thing because I'm a maniac. But, again, I get it because, again, casual fans aren't necessarily going to watch an entire three-hour show every week on Monday, then the two hours on Friday. They might catch some clips on YouTube, but this gets people caught up. But it was still kind of weird to kind of have a first match of the pay-per-view start at 7.13 p.m. Central Time. Good back and forth with Rollins gaining the edge in the early moments, tons of counters. Rhodes started gaining control after Seth slapped him in the back. Big Lariat to Cody on the outside. Phenomenal sell. It's really understated how good he is at actually selling. Rhodes kept trying to rally back. But Rollins basically scouted every one of Cody's big moves, the beautiful disaster kick. I think the only thing he didn't really counter was the Cody cutter because he probably thought it was going to be something else. And he basically spent a good bit of the match underneath Seth Rollins. It looked like Seth was going to keep getting the win. At one point, Cody landed a big stalling superplex, which looked tremendous. Big strike sequence between Rollins and Cody. I talked about the Cody cutter earlier. He hit it. Finally, Cody Gutter for two. They tease finishers a lot. Falcon Arrow by Seth Rollins for two. That never gets a job done unless you're Hikaru Shida. Disaster kick into the buckle bomb and a frog splash for only two and a half. Rollins keeps trying for the Phoenix splash, but the pool was empty. He never nails that move. I, I've never seen him hit that move in WWE. It'll probably be a kill move if he did. Rollins tries to hit the superplex Falcon Arrow combo, but Rhodes is, it's the crossroads, but Rollins manages to get to the ropes. Cody misses his classic moonsault, which still looks great. Rollins is the pedigree for about two and a half. Rollins was trying to do the bionic elbow. 
And here comes my favorite part of the match, and I popped like crazy for this because we got a lot of counter spots with Cody hitting crossroads and goes for another one, and they counter. At one point, Cody teases hitting the vertebraker, and I sat there like, no way. Because if you follow the Cajun Strong Style podcast on Twitter, at Cajun Strong Pod, I actually tweeted this word out. It was just that simple. And if you know about this phrase, you'll, you'll realize what I mean here. The cop caller, I'm like, if he... He's, breaks out the cop collar here. I'm going to lose it. And he almost did it. In WWE, he almost did the vertebraker in the year of our Lord 2022. Never thought I'd see that in a million years, but that was so cool. Cody wound up winning with the tights on a roll-up, which made a lot of sense in terms of the story. But mind-blowing. Four and a half links to boot and very hot opener and was my match of the night. And if I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of people agree with me over on the Twitter sphere because a lot of people, I was definitely pleased and kind of happy to see this because it feels like more often than not, WWE shows get a lot more grief and a lot more bleep compared to when I do the polls for AEW shows. For instance, this one, 76% of you voted thumbs up and match of the night was Rollins versus Rhodes according to all of y'all. Second place was Flair Rousey and third was Edge AJ. And I definitely would agree with that take. Next, we get to Bobby Lashley versus Omos. First off, love Bobby's new entrance setup. Makes him look like a monster. It's a slight changeup, but sometimes you need that, and it works. Lashley was bringing the heat to Omos, but he never went down for a single second. I don't, th- I don't think he took but maybe two or three bumps. And when you're a giant, it makes a lot of sense. Especially when you're trying to get back after a loss at Mania. Omos at one point picked up Lashley like he was a child. Did the classic Undertaker snake eyes, big boot. At one point, Omos gets tied up into the ropes. And Lashley just wails on him. Just bringing all kinds of heat. But then Lashley gets distracted, decides to put MVP in the hurt lock. Then at one point, Omos basically palms Bobby Lashley on the top of his head. Again, like it really is great what they're doing. Even though Bobby Lashley, with an average person, he looks like an absolute monster. But with Omos, it's like he's a plaything because of how tall and how massive that man is. It's great. You know, tried to hit a vertical suplex, couldn't. Lashley landed a big Uranagi. Teased the spear, but Omos lifted a big knee, throws him into the corner. MVP wound up hitting Bobby with the cane, and Omos wins with the Great Collie double-handed chokeslam. This was a two and a half link of Budam match. Better than their last, but at certain points, Omos was at half speed, and you can't have that in wrestling. You can't have that in football. At certain points, the match felt like it was going into slow motion. But it was a great showcase of Omos now with MVP and how deadly of a combination that can be. And they're setting it up for a blow off match, I guess, next week in a steel cage, the rubber match on Raw. AJ Styles versus Edge, Damian Priest banned from ringside. This match is what you need. Think about it. These two hate each other. And it's one of the things I hate about how WWE's done things in the past. Is that they always have a match that's a blood feud. Like these two legit hate each other. The match starts with a tie-up. With a collar and elbow tie-up. This wasn't the case. They immediately go to the outside. They start scrapping. AJ Styles is bringing out all the weapons with his bad shoulder, and that becomes a big part of the story. It's been a big part of the story 
since last month. And you wind up seeing Styles break out an Asahi Moonsault, which looked fantastic. Styles goes right out of the gate, teases the forearm, Edge pushes him, starts to attack the injured shoulder. Edge stayed on top for a while, but Styles gets momentum, massive Pele kick, there's a double down, Styles still rallying, hits a big face buster for two, it's almost like a half a glam slam, which was interesting. Then we get a super hurricane run by Styles for two, and again, great selling throughout the match by Styles on his shoulder, really helped kind of kind of sell the severity of the injury because we see it a lot with Seth Rollins matches where he keeps teasing the knee injury, but it just doesn't necessarily pay off. It feels a little more real the way Styles does it is the way he couldn't get the Ushiguroshi earlier than he did it again. He wound up hitting it after teasing some finishers. Styles secures the calf crusher. Edge keeps getting out of it. Edge hits a big spear for about two and a half. Styles hits a one-arm Styles clash. I was blown away by that part of the match. Hits it with a 2.9. He goes for the phenomenal forearm, but Priest stands on the highway. So technically he didn't, you know, he wasn't at ringside, quote unquote, which was dumb. But okay, Finn Balor runs in, neutralizes the interference as you'd expect. Styles gets on the top rope. He's about to go ahead and hit it. Mass assailant attacks him on the top rope. Edge secured a sleeper hold to win the match. Not a fan of the overbooked finish, but again, it served a purpose and it's further pushing how big of a deal those two are those two are and how judgment day is going to be the new like big stable the big bad to kind of keep an eye on but it was still a really good match four links of booty and just not a huge fan of the finish probably could have been match of the night if not for that after the match Rhea ripley is revealed as the attacker with new black hair further pushing her into the goth girl territory and honestly it works that was an outstanding match like really good stuff now we get to the i quit match for the smackdown women's championship ronda rousey versus charlotte flair and again a lot like what we saw a lot in the last match these two just completely went at it go back and forth back and forth back and forth and they were going at it they wound up going to the outside for a good while a lot of big chops at one point yeah i absolutely loved when they did this angle where flair gets the Kendo stick, Ronda avoids it, and then she grabs it. He's using it, but Flair runs to the back, brings out two more. And Rousey starts doing her best Steve Blackman impression. With mul- she uses both Kendo sticks, starts just beating the crap out of her, and that was great. They go into the crowd. Ronda gets thrown into the hockey boards after getting a drink thrown in her face. Fight goes up to the crowd and pays homage to Sasha Banks, Charlotte Flair's False Count Anywhere match back in, I believe, 2016. Yes. Like basically, it was like a bank statement or crossface, I should say, trying to get her to quit. That didn't work out. And they go back towards the ring. Charlotte gets put in a tree of woe. Ronda looks, lands a, locks in a great looking arm bar. Charlotte doesn't quit. And there's like a little kid at ringside that looks like the fiend. And Pacquiao acknowledged that. And I laughed my ass off of that. Charlotte Flair hits a natural, natural selection on the chair, but she refuses to stop. She locks in the figure eight. Rousey gets out of it and uses a chair to the leg to kind of get out of it. Charlotte gets cocky and says, this is your last chance. Happy Mother's Day. And then Rousey grabbed her arm and put her in between the chair. And that was about it. She quit eventually. That was a, it was car crash TV. Right woman won the match. Solid stuff here. It's what you'd expect from an I quit match in WWE's world. 
So give that a four links to boot and a really good match. And I definitely would agree with a lot of the fans who responded on the Twitter sphere saying that this was without a doubt one of the best matches and was second place in the match of the night category. Now we get to a match I didn't really care about, but it was perfect for a come down before the main event. And that was another thing that I have to say is that they booked this show out perfectly. They booked it from start to finish. Perfect. Matt Cat Moss, Happy Corbin. And I'll say this. Matt Cat Moss is getting really good. He's getting improved more so on the mic than anything. Because he's got he's got the look. But now he's starting to get that charisma. It's really starting to shine here. And Corbin, of course, played the heel perfectly. Really great match between these two. Moss shined at certain moments. But a good bulk of the match was all Baron Corbin. You wound up having... Corbin hit the deep six for two and a half, followed by a big splash in the corner. He wound up going for a second. Moss moves out of the way. And basically, Corbin does his big boss man spot that I see every single freaking time he's in a match. And I didn't even, like, I guess it's the fact that I didn't watch the old school WWF. It never hit me till I saw, I think, a Titan Tron of Big Boss Man. I was like, wait a minute. That's the, that's the Baron Corbin spot. But it's the Big Boss Man spot. I love the fact that he does that. But Mac Atmos wins with a roll-up for the three. Three links to boot and basic match. Corbin lost. Good times were had by me. And probably a lot of other people because, you know, Baron Corbin kind of sucks. Now we get to the main event here. With RK Bro and Drew McIntyre taking on the bloodline. Orton Uso started the fight. Orton and Jimmy Uso, excuse me, started the fight off really well. It's not long before Riddle gets in on the action. McIntyre had a great spot where he dropkicked Uso. Jimmy Uso in midair, basically, he, they did the Irish whip. And he was kind of just trying to jump and dodge, but Drew McIntyre caught him with a really nice looking drop kick. Reigns tees getting tagged in, but he he winds up doing it, tags right back out. Pat McAfee was killing himself laughing, which I loved. And then Riddle kind of gets taken care of, taken to the woodshed for a good while. Like he was absolutely having too much fun. And they isolated him for several minutes, probably I'd say like five, six, seven minutes. And then you see the big hot tag. Whatever Orton gets in, he hits RKOs on everybody. Super kicks are going like crazy by the Usos. Match really starts breaking down. Riddle gets his time to shine with a big hot tag. It's a floating bro, teases the RKO. Jay gets out of it, attempts a roll-up before Orton breaks it up. Orton and Jimmy brawl on the outside. Rain stopped that with a Superman punch. McIntyre throws him into the ring post, but Reigns hits a Uranagi through the announce table. He's down and out. Jimmy goes for the Uso splash, but Riddle hits a top rope RKO before essentially Reigns hits a spear after tagging Jimmy, which was, I didn't even catch it. Shout out to my boy, Tyler Batiste, he comes on under the dome with CDs Saturdays from 9 to 11 sometimes talking NBA, but he brought it up to me that, that he actually tagged in like right before. He just didn't even catch it when it happened. But he hits a spear out of thin air. Really good match here. Probably my one of my favorite matches of the night. It was just insanely fun. I'm not a huge fan of six-mans because I know they always will break down into a Donnybrook, but this one was really good. Four and a half links to Boudin. I said yeah, that the I quit match got four as well, four links, but it's like I think that one was a little bit better in terms of just some of the story being told. This one I didn't necessarily understand the way they 
booked it because I would have loved for them to have, you know, Riddle maybe pin one of the Usos to where you don't allow Roman to get the pin, take the pinfall, because it's never going to happen. If he did, if he took the pinfall, then you have an angle to where you can have the match the next pay-per-view. But it looks more likely than not that we're not going to get that match because apparently Roman Reigns, and I saw this pop up earlier today. I had a whole segment where I was going to talk about him. And the reports are he's not going to be part of the programming and he's going to be off TV all summer. He's going to take a little summer vacation. And he mentioned this past weekend after a show in Trenton saying that he's starting to work into a new phase in his career and doesn't know if he'll be back there in Trenton again. And if that's just the case, I want to thank you for all the years of support. And of course, it makes you wonder how that's all going to go. And Dave Meltzer basically said he's going to be taking time off and not appearing on television between June 19th and after Labor Day. He's going to be part of Money in the Bank at SummerSlam. But outside that, you aren't going to get him showing up on WWE television. Maybe do some stuff live via satellite like The Rock did back in the day. But my God, thinking about the fact you don't have a champion on either show, especially if you're NBC or USA, you're wondering what the hell is going on? What did I pay for with this? Because like they're sitting there wondering what the hell we're going to do but we don't have a champion for a couple months, especially the way they've booked the IC and the U.S. title as literal afterthoughts. Or maybe WWE just kind of wants to start moving away from championships. I don't know. But it's an interesting step in the future of WWE and how things are going to go. I know we'll probably talk about that a lot more on next week's podcast. But until then, enjoy yourself, enjoy the wrestling, and just don't be a jerk about it, all right? Have a good week, everybody. <laughs>